hope he's not in trouble. I was going to say, I'm, I might be. Welcome to Thinking Deeply About Primary Education, the podcast that makes time and space to think about pedagogy, teaching and learning, professional development, anything of interest to time poor but enthusiasm-rich primary teachers. This week, I'm joined by Christopher Such. Hello again. And Neil Almond. Hello. And in this episode, we're going to focus our attention on the murky world of English orthography. But first, Chris, what you reading for? What are you reading for? This week, I've had the pleasure of rereading Anne Sullivan's book, Access to Phonics, which is a practical guide to the teaching of phonics for pupils with complex needs. As part of my role outside of the consultancy stuff I do, I had the chance to speak to Anne um, for an hour or so. She generously gave up her time um, and it was fascinating. I learned lots of things that I had no idea about how to support pupils with really complex needs in early reading, ideas that I, I never would have come to on my own. And this book, thankfully, is a repository of her wisdom on this subject and her experience. And for anyone who teaches pupils with complex needs, I think it's a treasure trove, highly recommended. And, you know, Anne Sullivan's brilliant. The work she does is brilliant. And this book is likely to be useful to a lot of people. What about you, Neil? What are you reading for? So I am um, staying on theme of the podcast and I've gone for I've gone through the trove of morphology papers that I had in my little folder and I revisited how morphology impacts reading and spelling, advancing the role of morphology in models of literacy development. And that is by Levesque, Breadmore and Deacon. Um, what I like about this paper is that you get the abstract as you would normally lay out and then before they get into the meat of it, they literally have in subheadings, what's already known about this topic, what this paper adds, and then another subheading of implications for theory, practice, and policy. And I just think for the time poor but enthusiastic, uh, you know, rich teacher, if all uh, you know, academic papers could just go, this is what we already know about this, this is what this paper adds, and these are what we think the implications are, and then you know, nerdier people can then go into the detail and actually work out uh, whether those conclusions are actually matched with what the study's actually done. So just to let you know um, what they feel this paper adds uh, to the kind of literature of morphology in terms of reading and spelling is that um, they've used recent empirical evidence to specify the multiple roles of morpheme of morphology and literacy development. And they kind of present this morphological pathway framework, which identifies explicit mechanisms between uh, morphology and literacy skills. Um, and it kind of guides its inclusion then into theory and practice. So a little interesting paper for sure. Kieran, what about you? What are you reading for? Nice. I mean, this week's been pretty hot on the things that have been worth reading online. And I thought I could guess what all three of them would be, but neither of those were on my list. So I, I'm going to keep the other two for another time. I think I, I'm going to have to give a nod towards Michael Pershing's sort of blog on multiplication um, and the key facts. You know, if you're not subscribed to Pershmail, it's a sub stack worth subscribing to. And uh, 
I think he's really caught the zeitgeist with his question and answer format that he's um, delivered in his, his most recent sort of blog post in. So uh, well, well worth checking out. And I know it's not on topic, but, uh, you know. I mean, I, I think I can work out the answer to the first question because I know that ortho is Latin for teeth. Graph is Latin for picture. So I'm guessing we're talking about teeth pictures. So, But for anyone who's not sure, what is an orthography? Yeah, well, we're, we're, obviously we're not needed here with your expertise. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, orthos, uh, Greek for correct. Graphia, um, again, uh, Greek root um, suggesting writing or drawing. And so orthography meaning correct writing or drawing, which raises the question, how do we define in something that is based on social conventions, like all aspects of language are, what is correct? And I've already answered the question, it's down to social conventions. So when we're talking about an orthography, we're talking about the uh, socially agreed upon conventions of um, a writing system. So in other words, English orthography, which is what I imagine we'll be talking most about today, is the correct way, as it were, to write in English. It would be a real uh, diversion if uh, Kieran at this point said, no, we we're going to talk about like, Latin orthography. <laughs> yeah, we are, we're going to start talking about Abu Gidas. We're going to talk about <laughs> syllabic orthographies. Yeah, nothing to really add. Um, as I say, my notes for this one are literally ortho means correct, graph, graphy is writing. So it's just the, the correct form instead of like representing writing or representing speech uh you know capturing that in writing um I, th I like the word form because it links quite nicely to a bit of morphology as well that comes later on where you look at what morphology actually means you know morph is about this you know, deriv derivative of form so i quite like having the word form there when i'm explaining what orthography is because it kind of makes that nice little connection there between morphology as well but as i say apart from that nailed it when we're talking about the conventions of a writing system, mostly what we end up talking about is spelling, but there are obviously other things relate that are part of an orthography. So things that we might take for granted. So in English, for example, we take for granted that we write words from left to right, not the case in other uh, orthographies, that we leave gaps between words, that we go down the page. That kind of stuff is all part of the agreed upon conventions. But because... The most complicated and often most interesting part of these conventions are about how individual words are spelled. The word orthography often ends up becoming a synonym, not just for the conventions of a writing system, but very specifically the conventions of a spelling system. And so you'll have to forgive us through this um, podcast today if at points we seem to be using both, because that's that does tend to be how the word orthography is used but if in doubt we're probably mostly talking about um this idea of it being um uh, relating to a spelling the way that words are spelled rather than the bits of orthography that we take for granted how does english orthography compare to other orthographies so english is sort of remarkable in its structure in that i think it's you know the deepest uh orthographic uh depth of any language that's been you know thought of by humans yeah because they might be out there <laughs> um what i would say and they also then when you compare that to what we mean by what we mean by that essentially is that there are multiple ways with which we can represent the sounds of speech uh, to 
correctly write words. Uh, contrast that with some other languages such as uh, Finnish, which is the, has the shallowest uh, ortho orth orthography um, because they have pretty much a one-to-one -one, uh, ratio in terms of the abstract squiggly symbols that they use that represent um, particular sounds. I think what's also quite um, interesting as well is that as well as it having an kind of a, a deep orthographic depth, it also has uh, quite a complex uh, syllabic structure with it as well. There's a nice little paper by uh, Seymour and uh, Erskine, who kind of quite nicely uh, put this into a nice little table where you can kind of see how English uh, compares to other uh, European languages, which kind of definitely shows English being the most uh, the the deepest of orthographic um, depth and also kind of the most complex in terms of its syllabic structure. Uh, so yeah, straight away, and that's it. It's a quite a useful thing to know, I think, because quite often you hear people, whether they be people within education or people um, outside of education, who go, oh, but you know, in Finland they come to school, um, you know, at the age of seven, and you know they learn to read English and they learn to read Finnish, um, which undoubtedly is true. But what's important to kind of note is that because that system is so simple in uh, the Finnish language is that by the age of seven, they pretty much come to school already being able to read their own language because it is not as uh, complex as English. And so that's why it's quite a good rebuttal for that kind of idea as to why children should perhaps start uh, school later in England, because well, actually it takes that much more longer to understand and learn our um, kind of the structures of spelling that we have within English. So if I may, I'll try and put the sensible, really good stuff that Neil's described there into maybe a slightly wider wider context. So generally, I mean, there are, there are lots of ways to represent spoken language. And the common types are generally kind of, the, the way that they're, they're most commonly divided up is into like logographic, syllabic, and alphabetic. And effectively, logographic um, language, uh, written languages, or, or should I say logographic orthographies are uh, orthographies where at the heart of the writing system, the um, individual words or morphemes, which are kind of chunks of meaning, that they're represented by symbols. That's a logographic orthography. Now, there are no purely logographic orthographies. People think Chinese, for example, is. It isn't. It also represents sounds, but it certainly involves logographs, single symbols that represent words or morphemes, these chunks of meaning. So that there are also syllabic orthographies. Now, those, the kind of the chunk of sound that they are representing in the writing system is the syllable. So, for example, the Japanese orthography represents syllables using symbols called uh, um, um, kana, which are divided into, I think, hiragana and katagana, but effectively they're called kana. Um, but these symbols represent syllables. And it's, it's a great idea because there are roughly 100 spoken syllables in Japanese. Going back to what Neil said, though, when we come to something like English, we require this third kind, what, what's known as like an alphabetic orthography, an orthography that doesn't represent um, or doesn't have symbols that represent um, morphemes or words, doesn't have symbols for the grain size, as it were, of syllables, but instead has symbols that represent phonemes. And this is what makes an alphabetic orthography like English. It's a writing system where the 
chunk of sound around which that writing system has been built is the smallest chunk of sound that um, that we can that can separate two words, which we call the phoneme. So there are lots of different writing systems. I mean, somewhere between it's worth noting somewhere between a syllabic and an alphabetic orthography, there are um, kind of there's a bit of overlap between those two in orthographies like Hebrew and Arabic because they have a if you represent all the sounds, they have an alphabetic structure, but then they don't always represent all of the sounds, especially for text that's used by fluent readers. But in short, English is this alphabetic orthography. It represents the phonemes, what we can think of as the smallest chunks of sound rather than something larger. And it does that, as Neil says, because of the, the some of the particular complexities of English as an Indo-European language. If we wanted to represent English in a syllabic form, we would need thousands upon thousands of symbols because there are thousands upon thousands of potential syllables. The writing system has to marry up with the spoken language in some way. So we end up with an alphabetic writing system in which phonemes are being represented by symbols, which we call graphemes, which are the smallest meaningful unit of contrast in a writing system. Just finally to kind of tie up what Neil said. Um, so he'd started talking about the depth of orthography and he's bang on the money that English has a uniquely deep alphabetic orthography with things like Estonian and Finnish and Italian and Welsh at the other end of the spectrum and French somewhere in the middle. So we don't have this lovely neat and tidy one-to-one -one correspondence between phonemes and graphemes. We've got something much more complex, which, as we'll discuss, has um, significant uh, impact on how we need to teach this stuff. When when we say Finnish is easier um, and then the kids come and able to read, it, it's not so much for an outsider, though. Is that right? I want to make sure that we cover all bases on uh, on arguments that get made when this conversation is happening, because you know, rather you say it now than have to spend your whole weekend tweeting what you, <laughs> you know what the actual... Yeah, well, the, the nature of learning to read is you are connecting um, the symbols on a page to the spoken language that you are acquiring through. Uh, it. And because the, the, development, the development of spoken language is biologically primary, that's the, the recognizing the symbols and the connections between those and sound is kind of the, the initially, at least, the tricky bit. And that tricky bit isn't as tricky in Finnish. But there's no... There are no free lunches here. So like, if we take a, a language like Slovak, for example, really easy to initially learn to recognize words because the relationships between letters and sounds are pretty easy to work out. It's close to a one-to-one -one correspondence. It's got a shallow orthography, but then you've got other complexities in the writing system. So we, we mentioned earlier this idea of morphemes, these chunks of meaning. That's quite useful in English because these chunks of meaning can help us work out the meanings of words, that kind of stuff isn't quite so embedded in stuff like Slovak. So learning the meanings is quite is more difficult. And equally, it's much more complex in how verb endings change and the way that nouns change and the way that there is this gender within the language. So while we, when we talk about English being really complex, it is complex in many ways, but it, it the kind of the the choke point almost, the point of, of, of greatest complexity in English is that initial 
learning to recognize words those, those initial connections between letters and sounds between graphemes and phonemes that's where english is like really complex and that's what we mean by saying we're saying it has a uniquely deep orthography but down the line there are other difficulties when it comes to learning to read other languages um, it's just that first initial word recognition that is particularly challenging in, in English and if I may I'll just an example of what how that plays out is that in in English for example in the first few years of pupils learning to recognize words we identify word reading difficulties by things like accuracy because like your average reader is still struggling with you know 20 30 percent of words that they might come across even after they've been reading for two or three years if you contra contrast that with a shallow orthography like German after a year you are judging reading difficulties almost purely on pace because every word can be pretty easily decoded once you've learned the basic relationships between letters and sounds. So yeah, it has pretty major implications for learning to read and it's different between languages. Cool. I mean, I wasn't necessarily going to keep that in the podcast. I was just going to see if Neil wanted to, <laughs> but that seems pretty, that seems pretty important. The only thing I'll add, and it's not that important, but it can get cut is that, um, in terms of logographs, if you want an example of that, the pound sign is a really good example of what a logograph is that is actually still part of our, uh, you know, English writing system. We see that sign and straight away we know that that sign stands for pound. So uh, Chris's explanation is always, you know, spot on. But if you wanted a, a worked example, a real worked example of what that actually is, then I'll throw that one into you as well. Yeah, and, yeah. and even going beyond kind of like mathematical symbols like the ampersand. Is a great yeah. example of a logograph because it literally represents a word and well and a morpheme because it's a um a, a single uh, a monomorphemic word it's yeah really really lovely example yeah i'm definitely not deleting that Neil. that's a really good one yeah ampersand used to be and per se and at the end of the alphabet is that right uh possibly <laughs> if it is i've just learned something new yeah like that i think it was an additional letter it was a letter at one point um that's and you cool. have xyz and per se and don't, don't ask me why. <laughs> so Neil, to what extent is English orthography a representation of spoken language? This is the one I imagine. Maybe Chris and I might disagree with. I'm not sure. It'd be interesting to see uh, where this one goes. So the real answer is that it depends because Chris said it is literally a, a social construct of how you want to go about organising these principles of how to make this incredibly complex language that we have in a, and the writing systems that we use to represent it uh, transparent for um, children that are learning it. You know, many phonics schemes have their own way of trying to, and that's effectively what phonics is, and I'm sure Chris will um, hopefully agree with this part, is that phonics is just how do we represent this English language in a way that doesn't overwhelm children when they first start to read. And so obviously most phonics programs if not all phonics programs that i'm certainly aware of you know they kind of try to hide some of this orthographic depth by um creating a, a false code where literally we pretend uh that there is this kind of one-to-one -one correspondence and so obviously in that state then yeah that, at that point uh english orthography uh you know mirrors exactly what spoken language is and as that kind of we introduce that complexity where we start to have things where the same spelling has different sounds or where different sounds can have the same spelling then that's where we 
I certainly thought, well, this is there's a nice, uh, easy explanation for this. We can just say, well, letters are represented, uh, you know, sounds, sorry, sounds can be spelt with either, you know, one letter, two letters, three letters, or four letters, and just kind of through a lot of practice, we can then sort of uh, orthographically map, and we can use a bit of context when we're reading it to understand what this word might mean in this particular sentence. That tells us what, um, so if we're seeing, um, you know, I had cheese on my bread we know that the ea is the air and not one of the other representations that it could be however the more i kind of talk with chris and various other people who are uh, far more expert than than i you know there are certainly some sort of complications within that in part because of the etymology of some of the words that we have so what we mean by etymology is the history of that word and where that word has come from so many uh you know nice easy one knight is like a knight in shining armor um you know used to be in middle english i think it might be in old english you know knicht and so the k sound was you know very adamant and there at the beginning uh over time language is involved because language although um say totally you know uh, social construct seems to have some sort of biological element to it in that it does evolve over time and grows uh you know you could put i think on a podcast i listened to it's about a thousand years worth of difference between someone being able to understand the same language so someone who was here in the year 1000 wouldn't necessarily be able to understand what we're saying right now because it just sounds so differently because language evolves over time as weird and wonderful things happen and I'm sure we'll go into a bit more depth on that later on so the argument is then well right now we don't spell um so we don't pronounce the k in night so actually are we happy with just telling children that well we can just say that here it's two letters this k in the n now spell this uh one sound of n move on or actually do we is it the right thing actually to say well actually this is what I think of the, it's called like an etymological marker, where it's telling us that at one point, this was pronounced as K-N and knicht, it's a little, the I sounds changed ever so slightly because of the great vowel shift, and whether that's something worth teaching about. Now, I'm not, for some words, I think I am, but I think for some words like night and gnome, um, nat, um, I think I'm I'm personally, I think I'm quite happy with just saying, yeah, you know, two letters, one sound. It used to be sounded out. Now we don't. But for me, kind of this false representation that we provide students, I think is absolutely fine. And really, it's a nice thing. The teachers might know that the K was pronounced, the the, the G in Nat used to be pronounced. Um, some teachers don't. Does it prevent children from actually developing and moving on with their spelling? I'm, not sure that it does massively and so I think this is where Chris and I might disagree slightly on some things I'm not sure the few things you mentioned there because obviously I'm thinking a thousand years ago Normans hadn't yet invaded England or the British Isles and on last week's Teaching Together podcast I was talking to Dave Taylor about um, numbers to 20 and obviously the numbers between 11 and 20 are impacted slightly by a little bit of what you were talking about there. And I was also talking about how 
overtime bowel stretch or they contract and that possibly happened with things like 13. Do you think the printing press has had an impact and it will slow the rate at which this is happening down? Because And so in 3023, do you reckon we'll still have a closer version of English? Because I think if you look at Scottish and Irvine Welsh, it's English, but it's not really. And I think if we, you know, what, what do you think? Uh, two things. Yes, I think it probably will slow it down, although certainly, um, you know, since the printing press in what, the 13th, 14th century, I think around that time. In terms of English, printing press a lot uh, was brought into Britain by Caxton in the late 1400s. Late 1400s. So evidently, like, you know, since then you've had like Shakespeare plays. And obviously Shakespeare plays, you know, we can read Shakespeare plays. Um, we might be able to make pretty good educated guesses if you're literate. But they were printed, printed in large-ish numbers, as well as, you know, um, Samuel Johnson's dictionary was printed. At one point, it was the most like popular book in the world, but still language has evolved. So will it slow it down? Yes, I think obviously because far more is printed, not only, you know, literally, but also kind of uh, through social media and the internet and the world wide web, it will slow it down. But a lot of the reason why we, uh, going back to that first, second question we had, you know, why is English orthography you know, as deep as it is? One of the many reasons um, is because of the printing press and, you know, decisions that were made by people who ran the printing houses at the time, purely because, you know, for various reasons, one, because they themselves were of, you know, Danish descent. And so they changed a few things around to some, you know, practical things like, well, we can't fit this spelling, uh, you know, within the space that we have. So let's chuck something out. And then obviously, you know, various books with different spellings didn't survive in whatever invasion fire events. And so those were the ones that did. And I'd say because of over time, we've ended up with a system that we have got. So yes, it will slow it down, I think. But it's also a pretty large reason as to why uh, we're in the why we have the orthographic system that we currently have right now. Yeah, sorry for the diversion, but um, that, that could be a podcast series on its own, let alone a, an episode. I, I'd listen to the, I'd listen to that in its, in its entirety. And um, so yeah, so Chris, back to sort of back to business. Um, to what extent is it a representation of spoken language? Neil's out of this element of uh, sort of you know, tension into the, into what's going on, what the answer is going to be. I'm excited. Well, first thing to note, before I dive into the question, I'm sure Neil is going to want to recommend a podcast on that very um, topic there. One that he recommended to me that I am working my way through very slowly, but it's very good indeed. What's it called again, Neil? The one on uh, English etymology, can you remember? Uh, it's just called literally the history of English, the history of English podcast. Fantastic. Um, really recommend those first it get it can get very very niche into some like particular uh parts of it but i just love those first because i'm obviously a massive fan of history i just love like those first like 15 episodes where we just like before we even get to english where we think about um <laughs> Chris mentioned this idea of like Proto-Indo-Europeans, like one of those like first Indo-European languages. They think, and I think I recommended the book um, that a lot of that research comes from the course. I'll get the proper name for that improperly in a minute. So the idea being that, you know, language first of all started uh, around like in the Ural Mountains, so like modern day Ukraine. And it was basically because of the domestication of the horse 
and a genetic mutation that meant that people became like lactose tolerant again, like kind of after those initial stages of uh, infancy that allowed people to travel. And so obviously with travel becomes trade with different people, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And just kind of how then these languages then evolved over time. And so effectively there are many languages, you know, separated by, you know, literal time and, and space. So like the two obvious ones, you know, you have like Latin and Greek, which you kind of understand are, would be very similar. Um, you know, the in Rome eventually overtook, uh, overcame uh, ancient Greece, and kind of so there was a lot of assimilation there of various sounds and alphabetic uh, <clears throat> symbols. But also then you have this idea of like that Sanskrit, which is like a language you usually find in like India, like has quite a lot of cognates, has like lots of cognates. Um, to these languages as well and so eventually you know linguists kind of trace these this idea that you know hellenistic these kind of latin romance languages uh you know all kind of came from this one stem from this one language of uh indo-european i just find it you know as a history nerd <laughs> totally fascinating how that happened so yeah fully record the whole thing is great i'm, st I'm still working my way through it he's still bringing stuff out but yeah it's the kind of podcast that i can't do it on a walk because i just want to like stop and like write notes like about it all um but yeah i really enjoy it as you might have guessed and in fact if you came to my let's talk about spelling talk which i did about um on a couple of research ago like the first maybe third of that podcast just literally takes us through you know how english orthography got to the state that it was in so uh, no doubt i'll be talking a little bit about that but not not the whole thing uh later on otherwise to say we'll be here for 40 minutes yeah just to just to say quite how niche that gets there's a good episode which is purely about the how how uh the lo the location of proto-indo-european that neil describes is um identified through historical sources through things like the fact that proto-indo-european seems to have a word that means honey for example so that must be an area of the world that has um honeybees and this sort of yeah fascinating stuff Back to the topic that we were talking about um, specifically with this question is like, to what extent is English orthography a representation of spoken language? Well, there's a larger question here, which is putting aside phonology, kind of the study of sounds just for a moment. Like you could make an argument that, well, that the purpose of written language is purely to take a spoken language and to have it in a written form, to be able to say, look, I can point at this and I can work out what that would be in speech. And that's largely the case. But because of the nature of a writing system, because of the fact that it, it exists and it becomes a tool in and of itself, as we can see by the fact that we can read fluently in silence more than we can out loud in a lot of cases, because it's this tool, it ends up taking on and doing things that, it, that speech can't do. It has affordances that speech doesn't have. So an orthography or part of uh, an orthography might be the way in which you know, we underline things and have subheadings. Now, you could make an argument that that's just representing the stress that we might say, that we might put into our voice. But that's probably not the case with, like, um, with um, subheadings, really. Um, we're doing something slightly different. Or the use of paragraphs. Is that just, oh, that represents a longer pause between two? You could argue that, but I personally make the argument that it goes beyond... It ha written language has a has affordances that spoken language doesn't have so there are certain things that we can do with written language 
that we can't do with spoken language. So that's the first kind of larger question. Is it a representation of spoken language? Well, largely, but there are certain affordances that it has that means it diverges in certain ways. The second question that's kind of within that, which is I think largely what Neil was speaking to and, and on which I largely agree, is the question of, well, to what extent is our written language representing uh, the sounds of spoken language? And it's absolutely the case in English that largely what our writing system is doing or a big component of what our writing system doing is doing is it's taking those sounds that I mentioned earlier, phonemes, these kind of building blocks, these smallest building blocks of spoken language and representing them using symbols. That's absolutely at the heart of our writing system. The question then is, is that all it's doing? And, and again, as I'm sure Neil agrees, it isn't. There are other things that our writing system is doing. There is morphology embedded into our writing system. And what I mean by that is that there are chunks of meaning that tend to be consistently spelled in our writing system, tend to be, not always, but tend to be consistently spelled, even when they represent, uh, sorry, even when they, are rep they represent different sounds. So for example, if we look at a word like nature and natural, you'll recognize, of course, they have the same underlying meaning behind those first three letters but we pronounce one nate and one nat even something as common as like the past tense we say um hinted we don't say like helped we say helped we pronounce that kind of morpheme on the end this chunk of meaning that shows the past tense in a slightly different way and that's because our writing system isn't just representing sound it's also representing meaning so in answer to kind of the general question, to what extent is writing representing spoken language? Almost entirely that's what, what it's doing, but there are, other, there are affordances that mean it can do other things. To what extent is it representing spoken sound? That's a, that's a big part of what it does, but it does more than that. And actually that's, as, as Neil suggested, that's kind of one of the reasons why we end up with this um, deep orthography, because it isn't just representing um, spoken sound. Um, Neil mentioned the word night, which, yeah, I think is a really great example of this question. And we'll talk presumably a bit about phonics later. With a word like night, presumably, well, previously pronounced something like knicht, we see this idea that phonics and making these connections is something of a best fit. There's English orthography is really complicated. And in most cases, the relationship between letters and sounds is pretty unambiguous. No one's going to disagree with the idea that in the word, I don't know, shop, that the S and the H are representing sh, etc. But in a word like night, it's sensible to kind of simplify things, as Neil suggests, and as phonics, and as phonics programs do, and say, well, like the I-G-H, that's just representing the I sound, as we see in light and sight and might, etc. But that is a simplification of what's going on. The GH is, or at least can be argued to be a marker of a sound that's no longer pronounced. We could argue that that now means that the IGH is just working together to represent the I sound. And that's a legitimate way to look at things. But we have to recognize that our um, spelling system and the connection to the sounds of our language is a best fit approach. And sometimes it's just a bit of a model like a word like Wednesday, like we could say that the D, N and E in the middle of that is representing the sound, mm, but it isn't really. 
it's just that's just a word in which the relationship between letters and sounds is a bit of a mess but that doesn't take away from the general point which is that at the heart of our writing system is connections between the sounds of our language or the sounds the smallest sounds of our language phonemes and the letters that represent them just come back on that i think wednesday is a word where absolutely i think it makes total sense to go down the etymological route there and be like when the Vikings came, which I know, Kieran, is your favourite uh, topic of history, you know, there was, uh, they had this god called Woden, and they decided to call this day Woden's Day. And so you can clearly hear Woden, and then through, you know, sibilation, most likely, it became wed, you know, we changed the wo to we, and obviously that D, then we kind of lost that as well, probably because, you know, it takes effort. And so as humans, we tend to try to, if we can, in kind of spoken language, if we can try to take some shortcuts, naturally we will do. Um, and that's one of the ways that language is kind of like do evolve. Uh, we just become lazy, really, which you know, says a lot for us as a species. Um, absolutely. You know, like I totally agree. You know, why would we tell them that um, DNA is N, you know, like, it's far more interesting, I think, and makes more sense in that rare case where there is literally this is, it's the only one I can think of where we might, you know, say DNA is particularly, you know, this N uh, sound. So, yeah, fully on board with that part. Um, I think particularly early on, though, you want to be as uh, restrained with that to avoid any, you know, too much complexity too quickly. So it's, it's a lovely one for you know, maybe like year three. Would I get maybe year two? Would I, you know, have the children down at year one and say, right, children, today we're going to learn how to spell Wednesday. And it comes from this, uh, you know, this, the Viking god named Woden's Day. Probably not. Um, and I think that's where, you know, theory is all nice. But then you've got to think about, you know, what this looks like in classroom practice as well. And that's a, you know, a big part, I think, of what yeah, we as a podcast can offer. I mean, you've already mentioned morphology, both of you, a few times. What role does morphology play in English orthography? So as mentioned, one of the key things that morphology, well, morphology is kind of like the study of morphemes. So it's worth talking about effectively what role the morphemes, these um, kind of building blocks, these smallest building blocks of meaning, what, do, what role do they play in our writing system? Well, the first thing to say is, well, what role do they play in spoken language? Well, by definition... Spoken language is made up of these chunks of meaning. We are attempting to show meaning through the sounds that we make. The reason why morphemes are so useful is that we can talk about communication perhaps in a more convenient way at points. If we look at a word, like two words like I have, and then we put them together to make I've, well, in one case, we might say under one interpretation, well, that's two words and then it's one word. Well, is it? Morphology kind of gets rid of all that nonsense and says, well, it's still two morphemes. It's still kind of I, the pronoun representing me, and this V-E or H-A-V-E representing, you know, possession or have. It's still two, chunk two chunks of meaning there. So morphemes, these chunks of meaning are a really useful way to analyze spoken language and to think about language more generally and in English as I said earlier the key thing is that we tend to represent these chunks of meaning relatively consistently so the past tense is often though not always represented ed negation is often represented or one way of talking about negation is often spelt un and 
because of that attempt to have that consistency in spelling the morpheme, we end up creating inconsistencies in the relationships between letters and sounds. So morphology, really useful for understanding the meaning of words in a lot of cases and seeing the patterns of meaning within language, but a real pain in many ways in terms of um, the complexities of word recognition uh, that pupils have at the start of their journey to becoming a reader. I think this is one where a bit of the history of the kind of English language is kind of like quite useful to understand oh, you know, where it's come from, because from that you kind of understand how um, through those complexities, you know, it's really useful that we kind of carried on to this kind of unit of sound that carries meaning. So um, effectively, because of the history of the English Isles, like it's really just been like a whole real mismatch of, you know, influences from re religious influences, uh, you know, social influences, like we've talked about already about that, like, you know, the printing press and of course, you know, uh, warfare and things like that. So although, you know, most linguistics would argue that, uh, you know, at its core, English is a Germanic language, you kind of have to understand that there's also traces of Latin in there. And the reason that traces of Latin are in there is because obviously, you know, Julius Caesar tries to come and conquer us and that didn't work. And obviously, you know, we were still trading at that time with, um, you know, what was then Gaul, which was um, in modern day France, the then, you know, part of the Roman Empire. And obviously, uh, you know, Rome then, you know, uh, conquered ancient Greece. And so there's quite a lot, again, because of the trade that was going on there anyway, there was quite a lot of... Uh, Know, language and you know borrowing from there and so it's that's why despite us having a, a germanic you know our core kind of root of english being germanic that's why you find in the sciences and you know mathematical subjects you still have kind of lost these latin and greek roots um so you know really kind of useful thing you know photosynthesis you know photo you know, means light we can then you know extrapolate from that you know, what photograph might be. So, okay, photo, light, you know, graph, something to, you know, picture, you know, writing. Okay, so like a light picture. Okay, that makes sense because you know, that's how a camera actually works. And so how that then becomes, you know, really useful for the teacher is you know, I, I spent a lot of my time trying to teach children how to kind of in, infer the meaning of words from like the context and like reading around the word and you know, spend an awful lot of instructional time doing such things. We're actually, you know, spending a little bit more time on thinking, well, here are what these morphemes mean that are pretty common. There's been a little bit of research done as to, you know, what the most common morphemes within different, uh, you know, within Greek were, within, you know, Greek um, roots, Latin roots, uh, you know, different kinds of uh, derivational morphemes that come at the end of words where they, you know, change all to the word spending time teaching those they can actually then use that to and i mean this like properly infer meaning rather than just taking a, a stab in the dark you know that for me is where the real strength of teaching morphology and how you know we can get all of that in place you know really does come and so that's where you know i think you know that's how that history has kind of really impacted english orthography because that meaning has still, you know, transcended, you know, time and, you know, literal space, why, you know, they're so useful and why it is something that, you know, 
teachers need to know about. I've no doubt that we'll debate how much of this teachers actually need to know, but really important that, you know, they do understand that because of the history of the English language. And I've not gone into the depth that uh, it needs to, because I say that's a podcast in of itself. Just understanding that because of the influences from Latin, Greek, Norman, French, uh, and then obviously, you know, the Vikings, uh, you know, that's why we have this kind of mess. But because of, again, there are various social reasons of, you know, printing presses, the great vowel shift, um, you know, Samuel Johnson and his dictionary. Uh, that's why we've ended up with this kind of stable-ish idea of uh, these kind of more themes that kind of permeate through through English and they say very useful very useful to know and from my experience kids love learning about it yeah just to add something on that it's worth noting as well that like Latin in particular is a really fascinating one because as you say Latin comes in through Norman French but also in the past few centuries with the scientific revolution uh, you get lots of you get lots of like intentional borrowing of Latin so you, you often end, end up with slightly different words that have, bo- that have borrowed Latin or, or two different versions of a word both of which have borrowed Latin one that's come in via French and one or from via Norman French and, and others that have come in like been borrowed directly in let's say like the 19th or 18th um, century so loads of Greek and Latin gets in in particular into the sciences and this kind of builds on Neil's point about the importance of teaching morphology um, I think it's more than 50% of words with more than one syllable contain uh, a latin or greek root so we see the value of of teaching them like an example of that might be tract meaning pull and we see the value of that in tractor extract retract protractor etc but what's interesting as well is that this leads to some slightly odd this fascination with latin and greek in the uh, after the scientific revolution leads to some slightly odd stuff as well so for example the word doubt um spelt you know was spelt in various ways including like d-o-u-t-e a b was chucked in there to kind of nod to the latin or what they thought was a nod to the latin debitum and we see lots of these little quirks where people are trying to make links even links that actually don't have legitimate etymology like the word um island got an s in it to match with isle s-i-l-e even though Ireland comes from a completely different route, shouldn't have that, um, shouldn't have that S in it. But someone's trying to kind of make sense of the language, trying to make sense of spelling. And we see this ambiguity. We see this ability to try and make sense of things um, throughout the history of English orthography. But probably most interestingly, during kind of that period after the scientific revolution. Just a, a quick note on those Latin and Greek root words and how they link to the scientific revolution. We see this and even more when we look into vocabulary that that relates specifically to science. If we look at the nouns and verbs that we associate with science, a rough estimate, more than 90% of them contain Latin and Greek root words. And I think that speaks to this idea that I uh, mentioned a moment ago. But yeah, it's um, morphology that is incredibly valuable teaching prefixes so suffixes sorry prefixes prefixes so and suffixes so different affixes in other words but also teaching root words teaching uh, bases etc it's just fascinating stuff a kid can come across a word like unassisted and have never seen it before but they've come across assist in football and so they have a vague sense that it means to help they've seen un in you know 
unmerciful or whatever it might be. They seem full and joyful or beautiful. And they can start to join the dots and say, well, I've never seen this word before, but by understanding the chunks of meaning that are within it, maybe I can get somewhere towards uh, an understanding of it. Just a quick little shout out for uh, the YouTube channel, Rob Words. Great little YouTube channel, uh, all about etymology, um, where words come from. If you want to know, well, why is there a G in sign? Like, he knows why. And I think, yeah, he touched on a few examples. I think Chris mentioned uh, there as well. So definitely worth a little uh, uh, a watch, a subscribe, whatever it is that people do these days. I don't know. <laughs> I mean, it's really interesting because I think the the languages on on this particular part of the British Isles seem to be more susceptible to the influences of outside languages than others because I've definitely read that Irish um only took very specific fish or water based words from the Norse invaders despite arguably having more of an opportunity to um sort of cross pollinate both cultures. You know, for instance, Ireland has a very, very big imprint of that time, whereas um, perhaps more people have visited this part of the British Islands throughout history, if that makes sense. You know, for instance, the Romans never went to Ireland, so you don't have a lot of that. Um, And so, you know, and I'm thinking perhaps like German and French, would they be as willing to take on or have they been over the, you know, obviously it's not a sentient decision, but it feels like the people here over the ages have been willing to bring these languages in right back from i'm thinking the saxons who came over with the Utes and stuff that's almost your base language for what we have now and then over time that has been built on you know i don't think we need to go into the history and much more you know because i did have a question about the history but i think we've sort of nailed that but yeah i mean i don't know do you guys get that impression any studies into the susceptibility or the um the willingness of the Britons or, I don't know, the Saxons to uh, to get on board? <laughs> I mean, certainly no research, just, you know, connecting some dots and, you know, possibly getting five here. But obviously, you know, Germanic, Italic, Celtic, they all stem from Proto-Indo-European. So they will all have cognates to, you know, some degree. Um, so it kind of makes sense in my mind that there is probably something about that that means that there is this a degree of susceptibility between those languages, given that, you know, they have an original ancestor, this kind of proto-Indo-European that then comes into, you know, to to what extent does, uh, you know, an invading force that then kind of, you know, wipes out your whole, you know, tribe and sets up, you know, who didn't have a writing system and this invading tribe settled and did have a writing system. And then, so therefore, you know, you know, Romanized or, you know, brought their culture to it so i think there's probably linguistically potential there um it would be just an interesting one to find out you know what are those kind of core factors that actually make those languages more susceptible is it something like these social factors like literacy or is it the extent to which you know the the invading forces did take place because i think it's quite an important one we talk about you know a bit of latin a bit of greek a bit of uh you know norman french some you know some you know Germanic languages as as if they're like definites as if they're like you know real like kind of cutoff points but you know certainly for English you know the Romans left many Romans still decided to stay in uh, England 
at the, you know, what was England at the time when the Anglo-Saxons came over. And so there was this whole kind of mishmash and kind of mixing going on there. Um, so maybe that might have something to do with it. So I think that's quite an important one to note about this whole thing is like when we talk about this, um, this marriages of languages then they're not you know sharp definite but it all stopped at this point and then something new took over there was you know long overlapping periods where you know more change actually happened i mean as fascinating as that all is how does all this potentially impact the teaching of early reading and spelling the first thing to note is that the orthographic depth that we've mentioned of English as an alphabetic orthography, this idea that the relationships between graphemes and phonemes, between letters and sounds, in other words, is really complex, has implications for how we teach this stuff. Well, the, fir the first thing being that it's going to be particularly difficult for children to recognise these connections to begin with, but also that we're probably not going to be able to teach all of these connections as well so there are two implications the first of which is that we need to we need to think really carefully about how the connections between letters and sounds are taught we undoubtedly need a curriculum that sets out the scope and sequence of letter the the relationships or correspondences between letters and sounds in other words we need to teach phonics and we need to do so systematically um i don't think anyone would be surprised to hear me hear me say that but beyond that because there is this complexity, it also means that while phonics and explicitly teaching these correspondences is still a wonderful and useful thing to do through our education, that's not going to be how pupils learn the breadth of English orthography. It's very unlikely they are going to learn the relationships in a word like quinoa or in the relationships in a word like yacht through a phonics program or perhaps through explicit teaching at all, they're going to learn that through the breadth of reading experience. And so this means that there are these like two essential components for teaching word recognition, uh, a systematic phonics, so that pupils are given like a, a jump start to understanding the basics of this complex code, this deep orthography, and then a great deal of at first guided, and then as supplementing that independent text experience so that they learn the rest the depth or as, as much as they possibly can of the rest of English orthography and you can't do things well without both of those components there are some pupils who will learn the basics of the relationships between letters and sounds enough to get going purely through experience purely through a parent reading to them and pointing at the words and those children are very lucky but that's not um, going to work for everyone. So we need systematic phonics and we also need a real breadth of experience when it comes to teaching those relationships or it comes to learning those relationships between letters and sounds. We can, of course, and should supplement that with explicit teaching of morphology. We've talked repeatedly about how these chunks of meaning are visible in a lot of cases within our writing system. So teach it. Teach prefixes, teach suffixes, teach how they are commonly spelled, teach what they mean, teach Latin and Greek root words. Think about how that's going to be done. Now, that might be part of a curriculum and probably should be a key part of your spelling curriculum, but it's also informal. It's also you're coming across a word in a book and you're not, and people ask what it means or you want to explain it. Point to the chunks of meaning that you recognize within that word. Don't just leave it as a whole word if you, as a teacher, 
can informally with pupils break it down into components and help them see to see the patterns within language as well as what that word means as an individual thing. I guess alongside that as well is the usefulness of spelling voice. We've already talked about Wednesday. How much easier is it to teach that and to understand that and to remember that spelling if as well as knowing it's pronounced Wednesday, when you come to spell it, you think of it as Wednesday. And the use of a spelling voice is, I think is a really valuable thing to do. I think arguably we could also say that it's worthwhile teaching spelling patterns. So mostly these are things that you don't see rather than things that you do. So when you see a kid spell a word like live or love or have uh, just with the V as the last letter, it's worth saying to them that it's really rare for us to end words in English orthography and our writing system with a V. And where we do, these are abbreviations like dev for a developer or um, slang, like uh, love, spell L-U-V for a particular purpose. But we can point out these things and say, yeah, that doesn't happen in English. That almost never happens in the English writing system. And these patterns are kind of quite a useful thing to kind of sensitize uh, pupils to. So in short, teaching phonics systematically, making sure that pupils have a real breadth of experience at first guided and then over time and independent as well as that, teaching morphology explicitly, thinking about the use of a spelling voice when teaching spelling and considering the spelling patterns within a language are probably kind of the key implications um, of all this stuff. It's interesting you chose quinoa. I think that's the, the final screener question when you join MI6. Anybody who reads it aloud, Quinoa, you know, they get shown a different door and they're not allowed back in. Can't be trusted written on their form. And then, then you pass and then you accidentally, you know, you on your way out, you accidentally say hyperbole instead of hyperbole. <laughs> and then you like, they regret their decision to accept you into MI6. Yeah, I must have been in my late 20s. Well, no, early 20s. It was definitely university. And there was because it's, it's, on it's on a big sign, I think, in some, some chain. And I had no idea how it was pronounced. Yeah, me neither. What to add? That's pretty systematic. I think there's a few things. Obviously, it depends how early we mean early reading here. Um, I think you know, there are researchers out there who think that the phonics side of this can be taught through kind of a study of morphology. And that would be a far better way for children to initially uh, learn phonemes because we're, um, I don't think we've actually mentioned it, but most people studying linguistics kind of agree that English isn't a the phonemic language it's a morphophonemic language so it kind of contains morphology and it's a bit of you know phoneme as well a bit of phonics as well because it's represented by the phoneme um, and so there are kind of researchers out there who think well because it's morphophonemic let's not hide that straight away and let's kind of go in as the morpheme um it's not a position um i agree with but that it does give credence to the fact that yeah you know we shouldn't hide away from this morphological layer that is the English language. I think what I'm just going to kind of from, uh, you know, classroom practice, what I always find quite interesting is that uh, 
the morphological structure of a word does not necessarily marry up to the syllabic structure of a word and so a nice kind of activity that you can get kind of kids to do and it's kind of quite important is that you know certainly through quite a few I think phonics programs you know we talk about you know the you know syllabifying and syllabification to kind of as Chris said with that spelling voice they can really kind of hear each syllable and that's you know really useful when it comes to the schwa and you know Chris and I will debate about the the schwa for quite some time I'm sure that again another episode for a podcast but morphology uh, morphemes don't necessarily match up to syllable structure and so a nice kind of activity that you might want to do is to kind of get kids to break up you know particularly around you know year three year four is to get them to break it, words up into syllables but also where appropriate you know the morphemes so they can kind of really kind of investigate and experiment you know why that might be the case and how they're different um because i think that's quite important it's when you kind of have the morphological hat on it's kind of quite easy to forget that uh, you know syllables also exist and you kind of go straight in for the syllabic structure rather than looking for those that morphological meaning um and again i agree with chris as well you know uh, i would love for there to be a good scope scope and sequence that kind of takes the uh, the affix the affixes uh, that are in the national curriculum that you know really kind of put those into a real logical order um you know thinking about what these high frequency uh affixes might be that aren't in there as well as you know uh common uh greek and latin roots because i say i really do think that that would be uh well worth everyone's time and it's why I'm a big proponent of um, Latin being uh, the language that you choose to do um, for your foreign language um, purely because um, you know kids will get that experience um, because uh, Latin is a sort of a distant relative of Spanish and French which are the common languages that they tend to go to study in um, secondary school actually you know i think an argument could be made that you know there will be cognates so actually despite the fact that they're learning latin that's still going to be you know really useful for children when they get to secondary school as well if i may just like to jump in a little bit on what you mentioned there about people suggesting that we should teach um, or should structure early reading instruction around the morphine effectively what there is a suggestion that okay, we need to teach this, we need to teach phonics, or let me rephrase, we need to teach grapheme phoneme correspondences. And the best thing to do is teach them in a meaningful environment. And the way to do that is to look at the morphemes that are within language and teach word families. I think there's real value potentially in teaching pupils about word families, early doors. Um, And it wouldn't surprise me if down the road we see research that suggests that actually embedding morphology into early reading instruction is a really valuable thing. What I massively disagree with, uh, uh, with proponents of this idea is where they say that, okay, this is the way to effectively to structure a phonics curriculum. They wouldn't put it in those terms. They would say this isn't phonics because they have their own idiosyncratic view of what phonics is, which doesn't align with any definition I've seen elsewhere. Phonics is just the teaching of the relationships between graphemes and phonemes and how to use them or the relationship between letters and sounds and how to use them. That's how it's defined. If you organize a phonics curriculum, you want it to be in a way that starts from relatively simple stuff and builds up to the complex. If you organize it around the morpheme and say, or word families that are built around morphemes, you end up introducing inevitably complex, unpredictable stuff at the very beginning. You end up with a a curriculum that 
isn't aiming to start with the simple and incrementally build up to the more complex, which in any other area of education, we would say is not a very sensible thing to do. So why someone would think it would be sensible at the start of um, reading education, I don't know. But yeah, I definitely think there's room for um, more morphology in early reading instruction. And as I say, it wouldn't surprise me if down the line we see research that suggests that there is um, a way for this to be embedded but um, yeah, not a fan of that generally. <laughs> this has been a classic tilapia bread and butter. Get 50 minutes out of a topic that people would thought impossible to get 50 minutes out of. But as much as I've enjoyed it, how much of this do teachers need to know? So I think it's really useful for teachers to have a, a sound grasp of what a phoneme is, what a grapheme is, uh, what a morpheme is, and the role that they play in English orthography. Now, if they forget the word orthography and just talk about our writing system, that's absolutely fine. That's it's not a problem. But understanding how our writing system works, I see as fundamental to being as capable as you could possibly be in teaching, reading, uh, writing and spelling regardless of the age of the pupils you work with. I think it helps to, to understand the depth of English orthography and thus potentially to some extent where that comes from so that we recognise why it might be that pupils will struggle and why we need to persevere. I think all of the practical implications that come from this stuff are obviously things that teachers need to understand and I think it's easy to remember the practical implications and to not go off the rails with them if you know where they come from. You don't just end up teaching morphology as this separate, dis almost like distilled subject. You're teaching it as a real life component of how we use our writing system. The short answer then is, I think we spend most of our teaching time to some extent trying to help pupils become experts in English orthography. We might not put it in those terms, but we're getting them to learn how to read it. We're getting them to learn how to write it. And so I don't think there's any wasted time in learning more about how that orthography actually works. I agree with Chris. Like, you know, there's lots of niches that we've talked about. Like, do I want English uh, primary school teachers to have a test on like how English language like came to be? No, I don't. Do I want them to know that it's made up of the smallest unit of sounds of you know the phoneme and within that there are these kind of larger units of sound that carry some meaning yes i do do i want them to know which of these i want them to teach yes i do would i like there to be a curriculum that says you know here are some good bets because they're you know they're high frequency in tt language or in this corpus of uh literature that's designed for key stage two key stage three children like these are the highest percentage of affixes that we used and so make sure they know what those mean absolutely anything more than that is a lovely bonus i think people should <laughs> um but do they need to um you know modal verb there um no <laughs> yeah totally agree in terms of you know what teachers absolutely need to know there is a bare minimum around kind of understanding of phonemes graphemes morphemes practical implications relating to those that is, is absolutely fine one thing i would say is that there's a lot of talk in education about curriculum and we talk about it in depth and we kind of talk around it in the end and we end up completely forgetting that there are incredibly valuable subjects that just barely get a look in because mainly because of historical ac um, accident. If we were designing a curriculum from scratch, the idea that 
philosophy and economics and psychology wouldn't figure in most people's education at all until they get to A-level would be absurd, I think, to most people. And yet it happens. I would argue that linguistics, understanding a bit about our language, how it works, how it relates to our writing system, is one of those things that's worth dropping into the um, the extra bits of the curriculum. We might not have a subject, but why not have that knowledge so you can support your pupils to understand these bits and pieces? I think back in the day, it used to be called the hidden curriculum, and I'd be perfectly happy for bits of linguistics, some of the stuff perhaps that we've talked about today to be part of that hidden curriculum um, across primary schools. Very quickly, I would love, there's that unit of work that you can do uh, in key stage two history, which is like you take a theme or a topic from like 1066. I might be a bit naughty and have a couple of lessons that go just before 1066. When I say just before, you know, a couple of thousand years, you know, not too much. Um, but literally that is like the history of writing and reading, because I think that'd be a really interesting topic uh, from a historical perspective, because you can go back, not only can you go back to revisit some of those ancient civilizations and regular civilizations that, you know, you've taught about, but you can kind of add that extra layer of depth and understanding um that uh you know comes with then studying and that which you know chris and i have talked about wonderful i mean i think the more you know the more you can use it in your instruction and your planning i think that's also come across to me because lots of the incidental stuff feeds your focus in other areas in the in the less incidental and the more sort of impactful stuff so i think i think it's really important and like i say i i certainly enjoyed it it was like going back to back to basics and um, i'm looking forward to the the next chance to really tear the english language apart and i'm trying to think what that might be but until next time all i said to do is say thank you very much thank you very much neil thank you very much thank you chris always a pleasure and to everyone at home until next time thanks for listening right i really need to go No, no, let, let me give the positive spin on it. I don't want people to come away from the episode thinking they didn't need to know any of it for their teaching because I disagree. <laughs>